Welcome to the sermon podcast for New Life Church's Cabot Campus. We are located at 3400 West Main Street in Cabot, Arkansas. Our service times are Sundays at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. To find more information about what we believe, upcoming events, and more, please visit newlifechurch.tv or you can text the word Cabot to 88,000. We are starting a new series called Frames, and in this, we're going to look at how people, honestly, the enemy through people during Jesus' time were framing Jesus, a plot to murder him. But the fact of the matter is that the plot that the enemy had to distort or to kill the identity of Jesus exists now just as much as it existed then. The enemy is still working just as hard to reframe and re define who Jesus is in every one of your lives the same way that he was then. But we're gonna read through the word. We're gonna uncover some of these plots. How many of you like a good mystery? Anybody like a good mystery in the house? I like good mysteries. My personal opinion is the British make the best mysteries out there. I don't know what it is. How many of y'all have watched any of the series or anything that the British have made around murder mystery, anything like that? It's like, I don't know if it's just the accent or whatever. Like, is mystery just better if there's a cool accent? Maybe. But they just, I don't know. They're just very well written. There's really good acting in it. But I remember growing up in the 80s, watching reruns of... The, what I thought were the greatest mystery plots ever written that were all taken care of by a great Dane and a shaggy friend. Like how many of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Like those were the mysteries of the day. But here's the deal. If y'all watch Scooby-Doo now, you watch Scooby-Doo now, you realize something was up with these dudes. Okay, okay, first of all, Shaggy and Scooby, they were always the first one to see the ghost. Okay, they always had the munchies. So I'm not sure what all they were consuming in that microbus, but I'm pretty sure it's Colorado approved, all right? They were, <laughs> something going on there. But y'all remember, it was like the greatest thing, like the bad guy finally get caught once he was tied up nice and tight and they took the mask off and then he would explain to them why they kidnapped the owner of the amusement park. That was always the plot line. Something was going on there. Like, to, like, didn't even, like, didn't even have to interrogate him. He just spilled the means. This is everything I was going to do. Like, and, and here's the thing, though. The bad guy, like, he had a plot, like, he had a plan, and it was going to work, and all this. And then these meddling kids came along and ruined the whole thing, discovered the whole thing, probably high while they were doing it, apparently. But, but, but it was great just to know, like, okay, here's the truth. At the end of every episode, you knew you were going to have the truth about what was really going on. Well, today we're gonna to look into the word of God. And I think it's important for us to have the truth about how the enemy then and now is devising this false narrative and this plot to try to deceive us and to try to reframe who Jesus is. So if you have your Bibles, we're gonna be looking at John chapter 11. That's where we're gonna be at today. The truth is this. There were lots of plots to murder Jesus. Lots of plots to hurt him, to destroy him, to destroy his ministry. It started when he was born. From the day he was born, King Herod Agrippa, he actually issued a decree because he'd heard that the king would be born in Bethlehem. So he issued a decree that every toddler boy in Bethlehem would be killed. Okay, so from the very beginning, 
I think the enemy through man was trying to kill Jesus, okay? And even as he grew up, obviously Satan came at him in the wilderness. Satan himself came at Jesus in the wilderness, tried to tempt him, ultimately tried to get him to commit suicide. So Satan was definitely trying to destroy him. But even Jesus' own parents <laughs> made some pretty big mistakes, okay? Now, I'm not saying they were trying to get rid of him, but the Bible says at one point that Mary and Joseph left a 12-year-old Jesus in Jerusalem for days. Think about that. Like the Bible says, they went to Jerusalem, they left Jerusalem. A day and a half later, after they left Jerusalem, they realized, oh, Jesus is gone. Imagine how that conversation went. Like, if you've been married for a while, you know how this conversation went. Like, Mary came to Joseph. Hey, Joe, um, where's Jesus? Uh, I thought you had him. You lost the Son of God? This should make all of us feel way better about our parenting skills. I honestly, like... Like, okay, maybe you left a kid somewhere, but probably not for three days, okay? You probably figured out, like, something's missing. I'm not sure what it is, you know? And you probably figured it out a lot quicker than three days. But here's the thing. In the Bible, that's the last we hear of Joseph. <laughs> so... I don't know if Mary got rid of him or, or God did, but you clearly don't lose the son of God, okay? Good news is Jesus grew up. He became a man, apparently didn't suffer any lingering effects from being left alone in the big city. But as soon as he comes out of the Jordan and begins his ministry after being baptized for the rest of his ministry is under constant danger. People wanted to kill him constantly. Why? Did people want so badly to kill Jesus? Well, I think the enemy definitely had a part in it. And I think some of those reasons still live on today. So we're gonna try to look at this story in John chapter 11 and answer that question, why? Why did the enemy, why did the religious people, why the people of that day want so desperately to devise this plot to murder Jesus? So for the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize this story, if you don't mind. In John chapter 11, Jesus had a best friend, a very close friend named Lazarus. And Lazarus got sick. It was pretty serious. Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha had been around the ministry of Jesus, and they had seen Jesus heal. And so they knew that it was not a big deal for Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. So they sent for Jesus. Jesus, you need to come. Lazarus is sick. You need to come and heal. Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't come. He's only a few hours away, but instead of coming, he actually waited. He waited a couple of days. He waited until he knew for sure that not only Lazarus had died, but that he had been dead for a few days. Okay? Now, we may look at that and think, that's not very nice. That seems pretty mean, but I promise you, we know that anytime Jesus does something like that, he's always got a purpose and a plan. It's always for a bigger picture. We know in verse four, it says that glory would be brought to the Father, okay? 
But it was more than that. It was for Mary and Martha. Because Mary and Martha were going to continue on in Jesus' ministry. And he knew that in the days, weeks, months, and even years to come, the things that they were going to face in being in ministry with Jesus were going to be very difficult. There was going to be some pain. There was going to be some trials. There was going to be some challenges. And he knew that they had healing faith. But he knew that in order for them to go through everything that they were going to need to go through, and not just go through it and make it, but go through it with a supernatural joy and a peace that transcends understanding, that in order for them to do that, that their faith tank had to be more than filled, it had to be overflowing. He knew that in order for them to go through the things that they were gonna go through in their ministry experience and for the rest of their life, they were gonna have to go from having a healing faith to having a resurrecting faith. And some of you, that's the place I think that God has you right now. Some of you, you don't have faith that he can even heal and I wanna let you know that he can heal and he'll show that to you. The same God that healed then is still healing now. He can heal. If you're sick, he can still heal you. You have authority. If you have a a relationship with Jesus, if you have surrendered to him as your Lord and Savior, you have authority through the blood of Jesus to speak healing over your family, over your kids, over your mind, over your emotions, over your physical body, and you can receive healing, and he still does that. You can trust him for the outcome because, like I said, he's got a plan and he's got a purpose, and you don't always know what that is, but you can ask for that healing, and God still heals. Okay, so some of you are at that point, but you know what God gets even more glory from? What God gets even more glory from is people that have resurrection faith because it's another level when something seems to already be dead. It seems like there's no way this thing is coming back. And for you to have faith that even the most dead things in your life that God can still raise back to life. And for some of you, that's a marriage. And you may feel like, man, it is dead, it's gone, it's over. No, you serve Jesus, it's never dead, gone and over. He can still resurrect that thing. For some of you, it's a dream or a vision or some creative idea he put inside and you move beyond it. Maybe God wants to resurrect that thing, but can you have resurrection faith that he can bring something back to life? I don't know what it is, But some of you, that's your word out of this message. It's time to move into resurrection faith. The body of Christ in the times that we live in, I promise you, we're gonna have to have resurrection faith if we're gonna see everything that God wants to do. Can I get an amen? Amen. So that's what he's trying to move them to. Pain is often how we grow. (laughs) Can anybody give a testimony about that? Pain is often how we grow. Look, we've all been through painful seasons. I think about the different painful seasons we've gone through as a family. Honestly, moving to Arkansas, when we first got here, it was painful. It was tough. It was more than just leaving the mountains and leaving Colorado. That was hard, but it was more than that. I think the enemy knew that when we moved here, we were moving here with a purpose, and he wanted to discourage us the moment we had set foot in Arkansas. So our ministry... This struggle. Anybody ever heard of a Gideon revival? Okay, that's where things grow in reverse. It's like where you start with a lot and it slowly dwindles down. That's what, that was our ministry. When I was a youth pastor, I went from like 56 students to like 10 students and Pastor Rick's mom in a matter of weeks. All right, it wasn't going good. We didn't have a place to live. We were living with other people. We totaled our vehicle. Cody was in a wreck and totaled our vehicle. Nothing was going good. It was a very painful season. And in that season, we had a tendency to say, God, did we miss it altogether? It was painful. But we leaned into it. 
I think about the season when Cody was diagnosed with skin cancer and at first it was very serious and she had to have operations. She's had to have had multiple operations since then. It's something that we still walk through with faith and trust in God and it's painful. It's not easy. I don't know what the painful season is in your life. It might be health, it might be finances, it might be relational, but the fact of the matter is we're all gonna walk through painful seasons. But I have also learned this, that when you learn to lean into that pain and trust God and let his word be what determines the direction and not your feelings, emotions, or even the opinions of others, that in that is when your faith is stretched and grown and strengthened in such a way that this natural world will never take it away from you ever again. And sometimes you have to have those seasons. And so that's all the things that Jesus is helping these people facing this situation. From time to time, God is gonna ask you to do things that don't make sense. You're gonna step out of a boat. You're gonna step into the Jordan. You're gonna pick up your mat. There's times when God's gonna ask you to serve more, give more, believe more, be stretched more than you ever thought. And if you'll do that, whew, you're gonna experience something that a lot of people don't get to experience, unfortunately. That's a supernatural joy and peace. That is life and life to the full. So when you look at this chapter, you go back, there's this phrase, the Jews. If you're looking at it in the New American Standard Bible, which is the translation I was looking at through this sermon, in chapter eight, it says it, and then six more times after that. And every time it says that, every time it says the Jews, what it's saying is, it's saying the people that are or are associated with the religious people at that time, okay? Primarily the Pharisees, okay? That's, that's who they're talking about. And these were the people that were there. And they were the power brokers at that time. They were the ones that dictated the narrative and the culture of the Jewish people. And they were the ones on the scene with Mary and Martha when they saw this miracle happen. Now, you would think that these people, if they saw a dead guy come back to life, you would think that it would cause them to rethink any preconceived notion that they had about who Jesus was. You would think they would like rethink their plan of trying to discredit him, which they did over and over and over again. And some did. It says in verse 45, therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. Okay, some did believe, but a lot didn't. And in verse 46 it says, and some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, can you imagine that conversation? Okay, this whole group has been spending, ever since Jesus came on the scene, they're doing everything they can to discredit him. Just to say, ah, he's just a good teacher. Ah, he's just another guy with a Messiah complex. Ah, he's just a good guy. But he's not who he says he is. Trying to discredit him. Imagine that conversation. The guys that see this, the, the Jewish leaders that see this, they're coming to the upper echelon, they're coming to the Pharisees, and they say, hey, um, you know all that stuff we've been saying about Jesus? Uh, well, see, there's this guy, um, he was dead f for four days, like all the way dead. 
not even mostly dead. Some of you know the reference. If you don't, I'm sorry for you. But all the way dead. And uh, here's the thing. Well, Jesus kind of like, he brought him back to life. Okay, so he came out. Uh, he's, He's alive now. So is that gonna be a problem for like what we've been working on, like this whole he's not God thing? And you would think, they'd be like, yeah. But basically they said, nah. And they continued to devise their plot. Verse 48 says this, right after they tell them about this, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, so there you see the motive. You see their heart. In other words, if people see the truth about Jesus, they're going to believe that he's really God. And if that happens, all of our power, our plan is toast. It's gone. So here's the first step in the plot. And it still is happening now. The plot of the enemy is to reframe the truth about Jesus. Reframe the truth about Jesus. So the religious people, and this spirit still exists today, they want you to think that Jesus is mean, even though he loved us enough to give his life for us. He, they want us to think that he is distant, even though he is closer than a brother. They want us to think that he doesn't care. But look at the story. When Jesus gets to the tomb of Lazarus and he sees everyone broken and crying, the Bible says... Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, for some of you, that's your favorite memory verse in the whole Bible. It's like, I got that one. But I want you to know that it is no small thing that Jesus wept. Okay, now I think in Jesus's heart, like on the inside, I think he had a righteous anger about what was going on. He was watching the way that people were mourning and he... He was upset because he could still see the power of death hanging over people's lives. He could see the power of death hanging over their emotions and their feelings. This was driving them. On the inside, he felt that. He felt like this is not the way it should be. This is not it. I hate this. I hate the power of death having power over people I love. On the inside, that's what's happened. But on the outside, you know what he did? He just broke. He just cried. He entered into the pain of the people that were feeling pain. And he cried with them. And I think one of the most important things that some of you can hear right now, that is the Jesus who loves you. The Jesus who loves you is the Jesus that enters into your pain. He doesn't just pat you on the back and say everything's gonna be okay. The Bible said that something shook in his soul. Something broke in Jesus and he wept. In spite of the fact that he knew that about five minutes later, he was gonna raise Lazarus from the dead. In that moment, he just simply entered in to the pain of the people. That is a good word for us, church. You can trust the Holy Spirit to do his job in people's lives. 
He's been doing it way longer than you have, and he's infinitely better at it than you are. And sometimes instead of trying to correct or change people, we need to first have a little bit of compassion to enter in to their pain, to cry with them, to hear their story, to find out why it is they've been down the path that they're on. That's the Jesus that we serve. And some of you may have walked in here wondering if there's any person anywhere who gives a rip about what you're going through. Well, yes, this body of believers definitely does. But the only reason why we do is because we serve a Jesus who definitely cares. And he is more than enough. He's more than enough. I think the second step in the plot was to reframe the truth about ourselves. Trying to refrain the truth about ourselves. I love how the Pharisees said this. If we let him go on like this, do you know how ridiculous that sounds? Like they had any power whatsoever. Like we just got to stop this. Got to stop that Jesus. But that's one of the things that the enemy has always been up to. He's always been pushing the narrative that somehow we, in and of ourselves, have any capacity to do anything. That we are smart enough, intelligent enough, strong enough, godly enough, good enough, that we don't really need who Jesus is. From the very beginning in the garden, wasn't that the plan? Satan came and he tried to convince Adam and Eve, trust me, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're gonna have all knowledge and wisdom. You will be like God. And so they did it. And how did that work out? I don't know about you. When I get to heaven, one of the first things I'm gonna do is slap Adam. Like you bonehead. I'm not gonna slap Eve. I'm gonna let Cody do that. And the enemy has been pushing that plan ever since. We have to have an accurate picture of who we are. <laughs> in light of our sin, in light of our brokenness, and in light of a holy God, we need a perfect Savior. Because this is the result if we don't. Galatians 5.19 says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature. Okay, so this is, the sinful nature is, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm the Lord of my life. I'm in control. I've got this. Okay, that's the sinful nature. The results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery. Hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Wow. You know what I think is interesting is I think it's interesting how all these things are on the same plane. Like, we categorize sin. Sin is sin. You miss it, you miss it. But I think it's interesting um, 
I see dissension and division working in the church more now than I've ever seen before in my life. That, that even believers being led astray and reframing their capacity and their ability to be righteous, to be smart, are now sowing seeds of dissension and trying to point out other Christians who are missing it. If only you had the revelation that we have. Here's the thing. Even if they're right, they're wrong. Because one thing that the Bible definitely says that God hates is division in the body of Christ. It's people that sow seeds of dissension. He hates that. That is what happens. That's the, that's the outcome. When we fall into the enemy's temptation to refrain who we are. I see this plot play out every day in so many broken people. And honestly, I see it a lot on social media. And I see that something has died, but because of our own stubborn desire to have control, false sense of control, or to give in to cultural pressure and to give control to other people, we're in trouble. And yet Jesus comes, and yet Jesus comes and willingly enters into the mess that we've made, not to make us comfortable in it, but to bring dead things back to life. And you see that in verse 39. It says, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be a stench. Damn, it's crazy to me that even though she has seen Jesus do all these miracles, right? She has seen Jesus do the supernatural. Then in this moment, she's worried about the natural. Like, it's gonna be so stinky, Jesus. Are you sure? That's what happens when we're driven by our feelings and knowledge instead of by the supernatural, by the spirit. It's been, he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they, everybody say they, remove the stone. I think that they is important. I think we have a tendency to put big stones in front of the things in our lives that are dying so that no one can get a whiff of them, so that no one can smell or see how ugly it really is. But Jesus understands that in order for dead things to be exposed to life, they also have to get exposed to light and truth. And so it's when they're exposed to light, the light of truth, that they can also be regenerated, brought back to life. So watch this, it says they, right? So it took a group to remove the stone and expose what is dead. And I think that is a picture of our lives as well. This is why we as believers are so big on confession and repentance and having a tribe of people that you can bring your dead things to, the stinky things in your life to. The Bible tells us if we confess sin to God, then he is faithful to forgive. But it also says in James 5.16, we confess our sins to one another to find healing. And that's why 
we need life groups. That's why we need even more life groups and why we need even more life group leaders because one of the best places, the most powerful places and the safest places for you to bring the dead, stinky things in your life is to biblical community. And when people who solely and privately try to deal with the dead things in their life, this is what I've learned, those things never get resurrected. They never get brought back to life. They just stink. And people just try to hide them. Because here's the thing. God will call you out of Egypt and you can make the personal decision to step out of that prison. But when God calls Egypt out of you, that's gonna take a community of people. You're gonna need people that are praying with you, believing with you, holding you accountable, encouraging you, challenging you, calling you a bonehead when you're being a bonehead and telling you're a son or a daughter of the King of Kings when you, that's what you need to hear. But you're gonna need community. And I want you to know something about this church. We are not perfect. We don't have everything together. And some of you haven't been here very long. Maybe you haven't been exposed to that. We make mistakes. I have made mistakes. I have not always pastored people well. I have not always said everything that I should say the way I should say it all the time. We got weird people around here. I'm serious. There's some really weird people in this church. There's also some really cool people. I'm thankful for them too. But I also want you to know this. This is one of the best places and the safest places that you can bring your dead things. I promise you that. And it's not because of who we are. It's because of the Jesus that's in us that we've understood. It's by his grace and his grace alone. But things can be healed and things can be resurrected. And there is nothing, and I promise you this, there is nothing. The enemy will convince you of this, but there is nothing that you could bring to us that's gonna surprise us. I promise you. It doesn't matter what it is. There's nothing that you're gonna say to us and be like, oh my. I mean, I talked with a jacked up guy last week, but you're way worse. So you may need to say something like, I had an affair. I had multiple affairs. I'm addicted to pornography. Uh, I'm constantly tempted and have lived in or am living in an alternative lifestyle that I know is not biblical. I am tempted and drawn by homosexual tendencies, lesbian tendencies. I have addictions to substances. I like cats. I mean, it could be a, a lot of different struggles. Every once in a while, I dress up in gold and purple. It's a lot of, there's... truth is this. If we are the body of Christ, then we should act like Christ. And there was never anything too bad, too smelly, or too dead that couldn't be brought to Christ. So we need to be that body. Also, the enemy will try to reframe the truth that is right in front of your eyes. 
these guys, the religious leaders, they saw a dead man walk or hop because he was probably like wrapped up, okay? But he came out unassisted from the tomb back to life. And what's their reaction? Again, in verse 49, if we let him go on like this, then then all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. How hard does your heart have to be to stick to a lie even though the truth has been right in front of your eyes. The Bible talks about scales that come across people's eyes. Like you just can't see. You have to know that the spirit of the Antichrist is operating in our planet right now. He is operating in our country. He's operating in our culture. Okay, that's just a fact. I'm not saying that I know that who the Antichrist is or even that the Antichrist in physical form is alive, but the spirit of the Antichrist, you better believe he is operating. And one of the things that he's doing is that in spite of the truth being so clear and obvious, he is still trying to reframe that truth and deceive people, to lead them away from truth. Here's the thing. If it had just been an individual who was a religious leader who had saw this, I think the chances are pretty good that a stone would have been rolled away in their life and they could have received healing. But there was groupthink. There was a culture. There was peer pressure. These guys were loaded with their own thoughts, confusion, and false conviction about what was true. And the fact of the matter is they turned to culture for the answers rather than turning to the creator. And I see that over and over and over and over and over again. It is crazy to me how many people, including believers, who are constantly deceived and driven by false narratives or deceived and driven by narratives that may be true in the natural and temporary world, but are not the concerns of a Christ follower. Things that are happening and that are real around the world, but are not the affairs that we should be concerned with. You know what matters? Souls. Do you know what else matters? Souls. And the most important thing? Souls. There is nothing more important than souls and his kingdom and his glory, period. What God has placed you on earth to do is to use your job, your influences, your resources, your relationships to further saving souls and building his kingdom and nothing else. That is your priority. So don't let the enemy culture what's popular, what's comfortable, what looks good in a picture, what looks good on social media. Don't let those things be the things that drive and reframe truth. Let's go back to what the truth is and let this frame what we do, everything that we do. Amen? Man, I'm preaching way too long, but I feel good about it. I'm going to shut it down here in just a second. You know what Jesus wants you to know? He wants you to know the truth that sets you free. And it's so good to walk in freedom, man. It's so good to not carry the burdens of this world. It's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. Look, I'm a pastor. I would guess that I spend maybe a little more time in the word. Some of you probably spend more time than I do. Some of you are better theologians than I am. I probably spend a little bit of time praying, you know. 
it's still hard. Sometimes I'll open up Facebook, and honestly, I typically get on there either because I want to post something sarcastic, you know, I, I do that sometimes, or, but a lot of times it's because it helps me pastor people. That's the reason why I get on there. It helps me pastor people. Sometimes there's stuff happening in people's lives, and I don't know, I wouldn't know about it unless I went on to social media. It's crazy to me. By the way, if you're a part of this church, you call this your church, will you let us know when stuff's going on? Like, could you let us know before you let Facebook know? Like, I don't mind you doing that. I just want to let you know. Like, we're here for you. But I'll tell you, man, it takes like three thumb swipes sometimes, and I am all up in my flesh. I'm like, good Lord. There are all kind of stupid happening right now. It's crazy. I've got to stay connected to his truth, to his spirit, to his presence daily. Jesus wants you to have truth that sets you free, but you have to make a move. The word says, if you'll draw near to him, then he'll draw near to you. So if you want freedom, sometimes there's things that you need to change. His freedom is available, but there's a move you need to make. Here's a couple of those moves. Change your environment. I've heard it said, if you want to soar with eagles, you got to stop hanging out with the turkeys. And some of y'all got a lot of turkeys around your life. Man. You could say it this way. You got to surround yourselves with people of light. People who are going where you want to go and live the way you know you're supposed to live. But not exclusively. This is important. You can't just say, yeah, Let's get all the Christians together and let's build a commune where we can make our own butter and clothes and cut ourselves off from all of civilization and wait for Jesus' return. I've met some of you people. There's no way I want to live close to you. No. God has asked us to be salt and light to the world around us. The reason why we need the body of Christ around us is so that we're not going out there foolishly on our own. Because if you do that, you get picked off. You're vulnerable. You're susceptible. This is what the word says. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love and peace and enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. Pure hearts. I tell my kids, you're either going to be a thermometer or you're going to be a thermostat. I'll tell you, raising kids, if anybody's raising kids, you know it's hard right now. But let me just say this. Can we stop being surprised when a lost and dying world acts like a lost and dying world? Can we stop acting offended when kids that have not been brought up around any kind of Christian influence act like a bunch of heathens? Like they're gonna act that way, okay? So it's not easy having kids in public school. We have amazing schools, amazing teachers. I know that there's a godly influence and favor that is in every one of our schools, but that doesn't mean that all those kids are around that enough that it's changing necessarily who they are. 
So our kids are going to hang out around that. I think it's important for your kids to have some godly friends. And I think it's important that you encourage your kids to be those godly friends and to be bold about it and to be strong about it. Because here's the thing, if they don't, all they do is read the temperature of their environment. They go and say, my, my kids have done this. I've had to call them out. It's just so hard because all the kids, they use inappropriate language and they're so suggestive in all their humor and they, they do this and they do that and it's so bad. And I'm like, yeah, you're just a thermometer right now. You're just reading the temperature. And sometimes I may take it a little further. I say, you know where they put thermometers to read a baby's temperature? Is that really where you want to be? Or you're a thermostat? So a thermostat, it doesn't just read the temperature, it sets the environment. God has called us to be thermometers, or thermostats, hello. <laughs> Sometimes I words up my mix because of my dyslexia, okay, people? Stop it. He's called us to be thermostats, to set the environment. Change the way you think. Change the way you think. God has left us an instruction manual. I think it's important that we read it, that we heed what it says, and then we repeat it over and over again until it becomes who we are. Philippians 4.8, fix your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Also change the way you live. Change the way you live. The second part of that same verse, the things that I have learned and received and heard and seen, or the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I ask myself the question, could I say this to people? Like Paul said this to us, but can I say that to people? Hey, what you've, how you've seen me live what you've seen me do, the things that you've watched me post, practice these things. Live like this. Follow me as I follow Christ. I'm not always that confident that I can say that. At the end of the day, I think we have to know the word and then we have to put it into practice. Because when we're hearers of the word and not doers of the word, we deceive ourselves. That's Bible. But if we will try it out, test it, trust God, trust God with the pain, the things that don't make sense, and be obedient, that's where you're going to find peace, love, hope, joy, purpose. And I think the meaning that your heart truly desires. Amen. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. For some of you, to this point, right now, you have allowed your own experiences, you have allowed culture, and some of you have even allowed the enemy to refrain, to reframe who Jesus is to give you a false understanding, a false definition, a false perception. 
For some of you, that means that you think that he's just mad at you and distant. There's no way that you could be close to your heavenly father because of who you are. Some of you have believed that lie, that refrain. Some of you have gone the opposite direction and just thought, ah, Jesus is just so friendly and nice and he's so loving that I don't really have to change the way I live. I don't have to change. I'm a good person. Jesus never compromised his character. Jesus never compromised his word. But however you have or have allowed Jesus to be reframed, the fact is he's ready to completely change who you are. He's ready to forgive you. He's ready to love you unconditionally. He's been waiting on you. And maybe you feel like you made that decision at one point, but you have been away from him for a long time and maybe you need to come back to him. We might call that rededicating your life. And some of you, you've just never surrendered to the truth of who he is and allowed him to define you, allow him to, to forgive you, allowed him to be in control, the Lord, the Lord of your life. And if you are in one of those places right now, I just wanna give you a chance to respond and because I think the Holy Spirit's already tugging at your heart. He's, it's like this check in your gut, like, man, I just know I'm away from God. I don't have any peace or any confidence about my relationship with him. And I want you to know that God, he's here and he loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you. His spirit is speaking to you right now, wants to move in you and in your life in ways you can never Imagine, but it's your move. He's already done everything he needs to do. It's, he's waiting on you. And if you're in that place where you know it's time to respond, I would ask you, would you be willing to be confident enough? Would you be willing to be bold enough to admit it's me? It's me, I need him. And if you're in that place, don't worry about anybody that's around you or what they're doing or what they're thinking. You be obedient to what you know God is asking you to do. And if that's you, I want you to put your hand right now across this room and keep it up. As soon as I see it, you can put it down, but you say, I know I need Jesus. I'm away from him. Yes, sir. There at the back. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Got you, brother. I got you, brother. Anyone else? Yes, sir. Anyone else? I'm ready to surrender to Jesus. I want her to be my Lord and Savior. Got you guys. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Anyone else? I got you, bro. I want to give it just a, just a second to breathe. I know I've already gone a little bit long. But isn't this worth it? Isn't this worth it? 
Someone else is just wrestling with it right now. I want you to know how much God loves you. He wants you to know that 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 wrestling that you're doing in your heart right now and this decision is also a strength that he's put in you to wrestle for him, for your purpose and for the purpose in other people. But the only way you can fulfill that purpose is you've gotta be surrendered to him first. So that stubbornness he wants to use for his glory and for his good, but you've gotta surrender it to him and put it in his hands first. Is there anyone else? It's me, I need Jesus. I'm away from him. Okay. Father, thank you for every one of those people. I have no idea what all their stories are, what the details, but you know it, and you know it even better than they know it. And I thank you that you're here to meet with him. And I'd encourage you, at some point you need to declare that you're a Christ follower. Tell somebody, as soon as the service is over, tell somebody, get water baptized. That public declaration of what you're committing to in your heart but right there in your chair, we're just gonna talk to the Lord. You can say it loud enough for your own ears to, to hear. You can just say it in your own head if you want to, but, but let's just talk to him and say something like this. Say, Jesus, I need you. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you paid the price for my sin and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe that you rose from the grave and you defeated sin and you defeated death. And right now I surrender to you as my Lord and Savior. Would you come and change me? Would you come and define me by your truth, by your word, by your spirit? I wanna step into the fullness of everything that you have for my life. By your grace, by your power and for your glory. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.